From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, and your host for today's discussion of how we can groom women and girls for leadership roles in the public sector, and in particular, in politics and government, where many women just do not envision themselves, but are desperately needed. Our hope is that today's show will inspire some of you to throw your own hat into the ring and give others of you a place where you can direct the women in your world who you see as potential leaders. And for those of you who are looking to make change happen behind the scenes, this is for you too. Because when women gear up to join, stay, succeed, and lead, we can make a powerful impact in a wide array of domains. And if there was ever a time where we need you, it's now. The diversity that you can bring to public service actually breeds more holistic, sustainable, and forward-thinking policies, which make for more effective government for all of us. Joining to explore all of this today are two women who make a positive impact on a daily basis. Our first guest is Debbie Walsh, the director of the Center for American Women in Politics, a unit of the Eagleton Institute of Politics at Rutgers University. In our second half, Debbie and I are going to be joined by New Jersey State Assemblywoman Shavonda Sumter, an alumna of Ready to Run, which is one of the programs run out of the director of the Center for American Women in Politics. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 844 4942-7866. And we would love to have you join in the conversation. And we welcome all of your questions. So give us a ring. That's 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. And tell us, what scares you about public service? Why aren't you getting involved? And we'll see if Debbie has an answer to help assuage your fears. Um, but now I'd like to actually welcome Debbie, who's joining us by phone today. Debbie, thank you so much for joining us here at Women at Work. Laura, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation. (laughs) Me too. Um, I want to give a sense of some of the background of what you do at the Center for Women in Politics. As I gather it, these include leadership and campaign training programs that empower women of all ages to participate in politics and public life, and a lot of research that illuminates women's political contributions and how we get them into elected office. Is that right? Absolutely. That's absolutely right. We've been around since 1971. Um, At a point when we were first founded, people said, well, what's the subject there, women in politics? What are you going to do? And what we've been doing since 1971 is keeping the history of women's political participation, marking the trends, um, seeing how women are doing as candidates, as office holders, and as voters. Um, And then doing a deeper dive on some important questions like the impact of women in office and what difference does it make to have them there? Um, Do they make a difference when they serve? Or women's roots to office, how do they get there and and how is the way that they get there different than their male colleagues? And then finally, as you were pointing out, we take that research and turn it into action and develop our own programs to increase women's participation as office holders, but also to help them be better informed and active citizens um, in our democracy. 
Well, I have to say that's one of the biggest reasons why I'm so glad to have you joining us today is because both as citizens, we need to understand how our democracy works. And, you know, I'm really rather um, blatant about my dream that we can see more women get involved in politics in at all levels of government, um, which makes me bring my first question to you. What's the biggest barrier to getting more women into public office? Is it that they is that when they run, they don't get elected or is it getting women to run? No, actually, we know that when women run, they win at about the same rate as men do in comparable races. And our real challenge has been getting more women to run. You know, at this moment in time, women make up less than 25 percent of elected officials at any level of office. Um, We're about 19 percent in Congress. We're just a little under a quarter in state legislatures. Currently, there are only four women who are serving as governor of a state, um, mayors of big cities under 18 um, percent. And we've been tracking these these trends over time, as I said earlier, and we've been seeing not just this kind of flatlining, particularly at the state legislative level, but really in all levels, um, not just a flatlining in the number of women serving in office, but it's really been a flatlining in the number of women running for office. And so that's the challenge for all of us is how do we get more women to run? And we've been exploring these questions about why, why, what makes it harder for women to make that decision to run. And so it, tell me, when sure. you think of the biggest barriers that hold women back from just put, stepping up at the first stage of involvement, is it one thing? Is it many things? I think it's a it's a kind of a confluence of things um, and and factors that go into a kind of a reluctance to think about running for office. Um, one of them is I think politics and political the political arena is still very much gendered space. Um, it's very male, mm-hmm. and women don't see a lot of people that look like them. Um, working in those spheres, uh, whether it's state legislatures, their local government, or Congress. And so they think maybe that's not a place for them. So so that makes it a little bit harder. We also know that women think that raising money for, for office may be harder for them. And, and it may, in fact, be harder, although we do know that women raise comparable amounts of money to men when they run for office. The challenge for them may well be that they come from less moneyed networks than their male counterparts. Mm-hmm. So it may take them more phone calls to raise that $1,000 um, than a man might have to make. So it may, in fact, be harder for them, but they do it and they can do it. So it's a, it's a challenge, but it's not a barrier. Um, we also know that when we ask men and women who serve in state legislatures what was the most important reason they ran the very first time, men will tell us that it was because they had a longstanding interest in politics and a career in politics. For women, they say that it is because they cared about a policy issue. So we think about that as women run to do something and men run to be somebody. And if you want to run to do something, if you really want to accomplish change, you might well look at Congress, for instance, see gridlock and say, you know, that's not the path that's going to open up for me to make the change I want. So they work in the nonprofit sector 
or for or volunteer with an organization to try to make the change that they want to see. And eventually, they may get to the point of thinking, you know what, I want to be on the inside. That's what I want to do. I need to run for office. I need to do that directly. But the final thing I want to say about sort of reasons why, and this I think is really an important one, is that we know when we asked men and women about the very first time they ran for office, if it was their own idea or if someone else had suggested it to them, overwhelmingly, you'll be shocked by this, Laura, overwhelmingly, the men didn't need to be asked. They woke up one morning, they looked in the mirror, they said, I'd be a fantastic state legislator, and they ran. Whereas the women needed to be recruited. And we also know that women are less likely to get recruited. So those political party leaders who do the recruitment are so much more important for the women. And, and, and when you put all of these things together, we think that has been what historically has kept us from seeing the kind of increase we'd like to see in the number of women candidates. Not surprisingly. This is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Debbie Walsh, who's the director of the Center for American Women in Politics. Um, If you're a woman or a man thinking about running for office but don't know what to do, give us a call. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Debbie, as you outline these things, not... Not shockingly, they align with the same issues that are holding women back from joining, staying, succeeding, and leading in the regular workplace, that women don't see role models, that they don't feel welcomed in, that their networks don't land them there, um, and that they also seem uh, uncomfortable or hesitant to take on um you know, line item responsibilities, and that often they need to be, they're hesitant about pushing themselves forward in opportunities. So we know that this is following gender patterns that we're trying to address across the working world. That's right. And I think it's interesting, isn't it, Laura, because our numbers are kind of comparable, too. There's that sort of magic Mm -hmm. 18% number that we see in the private sector for women attaining positions of leadership. That's the same 18% kind of ceiling that we seem to be hitting um, at the public sector. And so I think, I, and I don't, I don't want to blame the women because I think it's really in many ways the institutions and the gatekeepers that are out there, at least on the political side, that have become so much of a hindrance. Um, I, I think we may be seeing a little change on that front right now. Um, with more women showing interest and stepping up and saying, you know, I can't sit on the sidelines any longer. But but it's certainly been a pattern we've been seeing. Well, it's making sense that a movement is growing, clearly, to get more women in politics and to have women's voices heard at all levels of government, because right now we don't feel like they are. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that we've been watching with great interest um, – Obviously, we were very attentive to this year's presidential race with the first woman nominee of a major party um, in our nation's history. And the day after the election, when she did not win, we were concerned that women around the country might you know, kind of give up and not have 
an interest in engaging in politics, either because the tenor and the tone of the campaign was so ugly and much of it gendered um, that women might say, I don't want to be a part mm-hmm. of that, um, or that they thought, you know, if a woman like Hillary Clinton can't win election, what am I thinking about? You know, what, what, what possible chance do I have for getting elected to office? But in fact, what we've been seeing both with our programs and other programs around the country is that programs that are working to get more women elected are seeing a tremendous surge in interest and popularity. We run a nonpartisan campaign training program in our state, and we have partnerships in um, states around the country. And we're seeing doubling in the number of women um, who are signing up. Um, Our programs are all looking, scurrying around, trying to find larger venues to accommodate um, the, the bigger crowds. There's a real interest for women right now in trying to have, making sure that they have a voice, that they their concerns and their issues are heard, and that they're not sitting on the sidelines. I think we're seeing a situation where, for the first time in a long time, people are really understanding that elections have consequences and they need to be engaged. How much of this growth, because that's staggering that it's doubling, um, of women who are looking to run for office. Um, is it along, is it dividing evenly along party lines? Is it predominantly Democrats? I think it's heavily right now, this surge, uh, more so on the Democratic side, although our programs are nonpartisan and, and we don't know necessarily going into them how many of these women are Democrats or Republicans, or frankly, even if they've identified with a party before this. Uh, but I, I would think that given the circumstances that I think a lot of this is in response to the election of Donald Trump, uh, a, a kind of an unhappiness with thinking that somebody who talked about women in the way he did during the campaign or even before the campaign, um, his, his relationship with women over time, I think was has been very disturbing to a lot of women. And then the policy positions that he's taken relative to some of the kind of standard women's issues that we see on the public policy agenda, women are feeling like they need to be more engaged. And I think it's probably more on the Democratic side. Which makes sense. But the, the intensity of the surge is noteworthy. Absolutely. And, and it's important to note that There needs to be some real work done as well on the Republican side. Right now, Democratic women make up uh, about a third of the Democrats who serve in Congress. But Republican women are only about 9 to 10 percent of all of the Republicans who are serving in Congress. So So women are even um, less represented amongst Republican Absolutely. Members of government. Yes. And and if we're talking about a goal of political parity in this country, Mm -hmm. that's not going to happen with only one of the two parties uh, electing more women to office. So work needs to be done on both sides of the aisle. But there needs to be uh, really an extra effort to reach out to Republican women. Um, And there's a whole conversation we can have about 
why we think that there are fewer Republican mm-hmm. women running and winning um, and getting elected. But it's been a pattern that we've been seeing for, for a number of years now. I'm talking with Debbie Walsh, who's the director of the Center for American Women on Politics. And this is, of course, Women at Work on Business Radio, Series XM 111. And I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. Um, are any women out there who've worked on a campaign? Have you been some of the behind-the-scenes support? We'd love to have you join the conversation and tell us what motivated you and what's keeping you excited and passionate about what you're doing. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Debbie, I have to ask, why do you think Republican women are participating in such lower numbers? Well, I think they are very interested still in running and and being active. Um, but there are a couple of reasons. One is that Republican women are either are perceived of as more moderate or may in fact be more moderate than their male colleagues and their male, male counterparts. And right now, the Republican Party has shifted so far to the right that in Republican primaries, we see the most conservative voters turning out. So the women who may run in a Republican primary can't get through that primary process. Mm. They might, in fact, be the strongest candidate for the Republican Party in a general election, but they can't make it through that primary process. Um, And then the other piece of it is that on the Democratic side, there is a much stronger and better funded infrastructure uh, supporting Democratic women, particularly pro-choice Democratic women who are running for office, the biggest uh, player on that stage being Emily's List, uh, the pack for pro-choice Democratic women. There is simply nothing like it on the Republican side to support or recruit Republican women candidates. Uh, and that's really been a big part of the challenge. So, And that also starts to Give us some insight into um, why pro-choice voting is so intensely aligned with Democratic candidates um, and also why we're missing a diversity in the Republican Party that might actually help improve the conversation overall. Because it's not just gender, gender diversity. It would be the, the intellectual diversity of having more moderate voices. Right. And I, that's one of the real reasons that we think that there has become this kind of partisan gridlock in Congress now is because there is such a strong ideological bent on both sides that that middle ground is really doesn't exist anymore. Um, And this is due in large part to redistricting and the way redistricting has been done in this country that has made Republican districts very, very safe Republican districts and very safe Democratic districts, which means that people running in those parties only have to worry about the far right from the uh, a challenge from Mm -hmm. the right or a challenge from the left. They don't have to worry about anything coming at them from their middle. And that and that hurts us all, because we also know that in the research that we've done looking at women who serve in office, they seem to do the best job um, at crossing party lines and at finding compromise. And we saw that when the government shut down a couple of years ago. Um, the women in the United States Senate were really credited with shutting down the shutdown. Um, both the Democratic and Republican men in the Senate have said 
it's those women in the Senate who found that common ground and came through with a plan to get us out of that kind of crisis moment. Right. And that was regardless of party. I want to go back to something we were talking about before. These barriers to entry that we know are the same barriers that women face as they try and move through their own career paths. Um, When we think about women in politics, we want to get women in. It's clearly something you learn over time and that women don't just you know, come out of nowhere to run for president. Yet we also have um, – we've talked, heard a lot in the press lately um, maligning career politicians. Yeah. Tough, so help make sense out of this for me because um, the career politician – phrase may be referring to people who are just trying to stay in office to maintain power. But it's negating the fact that growing into political office is a process and you move through it just like you move up the the ladder in the workplace, right? Yeah. And and I also think, um, you know, some of the disarray that we're seeing right now in Washington in this new administration comes in part because there are many people at the top who have not really been in this level before. And certainly we have a president who has not navigated Washington, D.C. and its political structure before. So while people like the idea of outsiders, um, sometimes there's a price that you pay for the, having those outsiders, right? So, so there's that. It's also a kind of a double bind for women that I think is interesting to talk about, which is that we know that for women, more so than for men, they have to prove their competence um, Mm -hmm. in ways that men do not. Um, Men are kind of given a bit of a a pass or an assumption that, of course, they're qualified and competent. Women have to prove that. So it's hard to prove that if you haven't been in office. So you really had that kind of classic situation, I think, in this presidential election where you had the woman who absolutely had the strongest resume, right? If you were thinking mm-hmm. about this as a job interview, the strongest resume. Um, yet when she would talk about policy, People would complain that she was too much of a policy wonk, right? Um, But yet if she didn't do that, I I don't think a woman could have, and we we saw the woman couldn't. I mean, Carly Fiorina was this, right? Mm -hmm. She ran as an outsider. It didn't, she got no traction on that. Donald Trump did it and it got him to the White House. So there is this kind of double standard for women in politics on this front. That is confounding. Well, it also seems like there's two different components to this. And um, I'm thinking the Ready to Run program is probably a powerful place that addresses both of them. There's the issue of how you get elected. How do you campaign? And then there's the question of what do you do once you're in office and the skills that it takes to govern. We're, right. we're facing a national situation right now where you know, at, at our first look at things, it looks like he, that was a team that knew how to win an election, but doesn't necessarily know how to govern. 
Um, mm-hmm. And yet we want to encourage people to step up to the plate who can do both, who are ready right. to campaign and who are also ready to go into public service, prepared to be effective with the other community of public servants. So talk to me about how does ready to run work and how much of it is addressed on the running and how much of it is addressing the work that follows. We're really focusing on the running, but I have to say that most of the women who participate in our this nonpartisan campaign training um, are probably running for local office, um, municipal, county office, and then a handful who are running for the state legislature. And I do think that in most places, um, women come in with the skill set to govern. You know, they know... They, they have the skill set. They may not think of it as that's the skill set you need, but it's the same skill set in some ways that you need for campaigning as well. You know, you need to be organized. You need to know how to delegate. You need to, how to know how to take in a lot of information um, and sift through it and pick out the pieces you need to, to really understand and really know. Um, and you need to be able to communicate well with people. You need to be able to listen. You know, these are all skills that women have. What they may not have is they may not know sort of the structure of a campaign and how that has to be put together. Um, And they may not know how to do exactly how to do fundraising. They may be a little concerned about being confronted with the media, how to use social media Mm -hmm. for their campaigns. Those are all the things we teach them through the Ready to Run program. But women come in. I think one of the big things that women who participate in our program get is that they learn that they have those skills. They're just not thinking about those as political skills. And they have networks that will help them in politics that they don't think of as networks that will help them in politics. Absolutely, especially women who have been in the workforce up to this point. Um, These are all skills that they've been developing for years that they could parlay into the public sector. They are absolutely transferable. And they, in some ways, they just need somebody in authority to tell them, oh, yeah, those skills that you have, those are exactly what you need to be successful. And we have campaign operatives who tell them, you know, the people who run campaigns, but we also bring in elected women officials who share their own story and say, I am doing this and I'm not any different than you. And if I can do this, you can do this. And sometimes that's all that a woman might need to give her the incentive and the courage to run for office. Well, in fact, I think that's hopefully what we're going to be doing in the second half of our show when we're joined by Shavonda Sumter, the New Jersey State Assemblywoman, who's actually going to bring us her firsthand perspective um, to the conversation about getting women in politics. Debbie, um, how can listeners find out more if they want to get involved with the Center for American Women in Politics or Ready to Run? Sure. They can go to our website, which is uh, COP, C-A-W-P, .rutgers.edu. They can find out about our Ready to Run program here in New Jersey, but they can also find out about all of the Ready to Run programs that are being held around the country in places like California and Ohio and Oklahoma, um, Iowa, Pennsylvania. We're all over the country with these programs. But also, we have a resource map on our website that gives them an opportunity to find out all the programs in their state that are 
either directly for women or for women and men who want to be more engaged in the public sector, um, whether it's um, leadership training programs, campaign training programs, political action committees for women. This is fantastic. Um, it's all in one place, and they can find out all of the resources that are available to them. Fantastic. So, Debbie, I'm so thrilled you're here with us today. Um, all of you out there, stay with us. After the break, Debbie and I are going to be joined, as I said, by Shavonda Sumter, the New Jersey State Assemblywoman. I am Laura Zarrow, and you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work, our weekly conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, and today we're focusing on how we get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in politics. I have the pleasure of being joined by Debbie Walsh, the Director of the Center for American Women in Politics, who was with us during our first half and continues now, along with New Jersey State Assemblywoman Shavonda Sumter. If you have a question about what we're discussing, please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Shavonda Sumter is a New Jersey State Assemblywoman who has served in the New Jersey General Assembly since 2012 and in the New Jersey Democratic State Committee since 2008. Within her position as Assemblywoman, Shavonda also holds the leadership position of Majority Conference Leader, and she was the Deputy Speaker from 2014 to 2015. A healthcare administrator to boot, Shivanda recently sponsored a bill aimed at improving rehabilitation and reducing the recidivism rate of inmates in Trenton. This bill, an innovative plan that utilizes research to illustrate the high returns on investments made in rehabilitation efforts, passed the full assembly and is moving on the go- onto the governor for full consideration. Another sponsored bill that she recently passed a- that was recently passed aims to guard against the loss of health care services for the most vulnerable. These are just some of the examples of how Shivanda is working every day as a political leader to make a significant societal impact that benefits all of us. So, Shavonda, welcome to Women at Work. We are honored to have you with us today. Thank you so much. It's great to be on the phone with you. <laughs> I'm glad. Or radio with you. <laughs> yes. Um, so, Shavonda, I've got to ask you, when did you decide to formally enter politics? What was the trigger for you? The trigger for me was in 2010, uh, when my godmother, who helped to speak before me, Elise Evans, had some health challenges and was afraid to retire because she wanted someone responsible to take her seat, and she wanted a woman. Okay. So she, she wanted you in there to inhabit that role. Absolutely, yes. Now, I know you were a political science major in college, and you got your MBA in healthcare administrator administration. Did you always have some political aspirations, or was this really the first time you were confronted with this? I always, I, I love politics from a small child. Um, however, I like to be on the end of uh, contract lobbying, advocating for issues that were a priority for me and for candidates uh, who, you know, in my heart of hearts, uh, wanted the best thing for the communities that I lived in. Uh, so having the opportunity to serve has been rewarding beyond my belief because I sure didn't imagine it. <laughs> it's good to hear that you're happy that you've done it and that it is bringing you deep personal rewards because you see the change that you're making. Yes, definitely. So when at this critical moment, when you realized that 
There was a place that you could inhabit. There was somebody you cared about and respected that wanted you to inhabit it. Um, Where did you go to get ready? Did you go to Ready to Run? I went to Ready to Run. I did, and I participated in a seminar called Run, Sister Run. So uh, we like to joke and say, I ran, Sister Ran. (laughs) (laughs) Now, is Run, Sister Run particularly for underrepresented candidates? It is. It's for uh, women of color uh, in particular. And it's really the, I'm going to say, the five series of where you start in the one-on-one series of women of color who are interested in running, uh, may have thought about it, wasn't sure they can do it, uh, and it puts women before you who have successfully done it um, and won races, and it tells you all about the different financial challenges, media presentations, uh, public speaking, and also allows you to network with other women who may be in a similar position and having similar uh, hesitancies. So, how Laura, can... this is Debbie. I just wanted to say one thing because Shavonda's being a little, also being very um, modest here. Because <laughs> she, she came to Ready to Run, but she has also come back numerous times now as a panelist. We have this diversity initiative. We have a program just for African American women, for Asian American women, and for Latinas, and it is such a powerful thing for women to see women that look like them doing these jobs. And Shavonda is somebody who really is about lifting as she climbs um, and making sure that there are women following in her footsteps. I, so I just had to put in that plug. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you. Yeah, so you are clearly more than just the successful alumna. You're now one of the teachers. I, I, I am, and I am honored uh, to, to stand on those shoulders uh, of women who were there before me, uh, and also to be a mentor. It, it's really an honor for folks to see me that way. Um, Debbie and I, when we were talking about this before, we talked about how some of this is skill development, some of this is confidence boosting, and as you noted, some of it is networking. Um, yeah. How do you, um, for you, what made the biggest change? What part of that was the most important developmental tool for you? Uh, for me, the confidence piece, uh, the the reality that there were other women who were professionals, who had families, uh, and still found the time to serve as elected officials and do great work and bring a conscience uh, to whatever office that they served in with passion. And that was important for me to know that I will fulfill that, that type of need, uh, not only for myself personally, but also for the communities and the people that I serve in our state. So that brings up a question for me, because I want to make sure I didn't read something incorrectly. Um, Because like you said, so many women who are in elected office are also running households and families. In your case, are you still actively working as a health care administrator? I am. I am. I'm still oh my with Stack UMC Mountainside. I am. I'm a director <laughs> of psychiatric services, uh, and and it's something that I enjoy. I, I call it my vocation versus just a job because uh, I'm able to help people daily, and that means a lot to me. So, and Debbie and I were talking before about how our professional skills can absolutely parlay into political life. Yes. Um, Debbie, how many of the other people that you see coming through Ready to Run are also keeping full-time jobs while they do this? 
Oh, for most of them, they have to. Um, in most states, uh, certainly municipal government, county government is not, while it could take almost your full time, uh, it, it is not a full time salaried position. And so most of those folks have, have, are still primary caregivers at home, um, working outside the home full time and being an elected official. Um, and for most state legislators, state legislatures around the country, um, there are a handful that are what we call professional legislatures where it pays a full-time salary and that's your full-time job, places like California and New York. Uh, but most states, again, New Jersey is an example. Um, they meet all year long. Um, they're in session in theory sort of two days a week, but yet they have full-time obligations as a legislator with constituents. I mean, Shavonda can tell you about how much time it takes to do that job, but it doesn't pay what you would often think of as a full-time salary. So most of the members of the legislature also work outside the home. But women have that added um, that added responsibility that most men still in 2017 do not, which is the caregiving at home as well as working outside Absolutely. the home. And then on top of that, being in the legislature. But this is also illuminating something about political life um, at the local level, which I'm sure women and men both face, which is that this is really a call to public service and you're right. integrating it into your life. So Shavonda, tell us, because I, I think in some ways you may be really inspiring. Women know how to juggle a lot. Lots of yeah. us do it all the time. So how are you juggling your... Um, professional career in healthcare administration sure. and your serious pursuit of public service. So, so I, I, I will admit that I have a wonderful company uh, in Hackensack, UMC Mountainside. I have a great staff uh, who works for me and with me. Uh, and thank God for cell phones, emails. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's and, true that technology changes everything. Technology changes everything. Uh, I have a, a teenage son. He's 16. He's a junior in high school. My daughter's in her first year of college, uh, married for 19 years, and my mother-in-law, uh, her health was failing, so she's now living with us as well. Uh, so caregiver on all fronts. Uh, and I don't juggle. I don't balance. I just do one thing at a time. Uh, because I'm in behavioral health, I do know that we as women take on a lot of stress, and we're quick to say I'm fine uh, and don't <laughs> ask for help. Even uh, when we're so not fine. Even when we're not fine. Uh, and I have a great family support that will let me know that, hey, you need to take a break. You need to slow down. Uh, so I take those opportunities to do just that. Uh, and I rely on my team and my community um, that I serve, and the legislature is also just as strong and as smart. Uh, so really being able to communicate my objective uh, and being very focused, I, I like to say that I am uh, hyper-focused. <laughs> you must be. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but get super-focused, I'm hyper-focused. Uh, so that means that when I'm working on something, I'm giving it everything I got. Um, we have talked a lot here on Women at Work about the importance of finding employers who help you develop as a whole person, who let you have passion projects, because we know that that only improves um, the retention of talent and the way that that talent can serve the organization. Um, how is your 
primary work, I don't want to say primary because I think these are both equally important, but how is your work in healthcare administration informing your work in public service and government? Well, I serve on the Health and Senior Services Committee, a priority for me uh, since uh, graduate school, I actually have my MBA with concentration in health systems management, has been access to health care. Being able to work on components of the Affordable Health Care Act and expansion of Medicaid in our home state has been a dream come true. Uh, I will say what keeps me up at night is the undoing of the Affordable Care Act because mm-hmm. I know what it looks like for a family uh, not to have insurance, uh, to delay life-saving treatment because of money and financial issues uh, to make a choice of whether you're going to purchase your prescriptions or pay your rent uh, with my senior community and my young adult community are very hard, life-threatening choices. Uh, So it's a natural fit that's seamless for me to be able to talk about the the issues of health care and access and availability uh, and serve on a policy-making end uh, that works together for good. So what's been the hardest part of public service for you personally? Because it sounds like you are serving um, the talent and the passion and the insight that you're bringing is serving both of your communities. Um, What's been the part that you struggled through and how'd you do it? The the hardest part is time. There's not enough hours in the day. (laughs) (laughs) And and I start at 5 (laughs) a.m. As as Debbie mentioned, we're a year-round legislature uh, which is supposed to be part-time, uh, but you have daytime sessions, and then your community constituencies, they want to see you during the evening, uh, dinners, uh, events, uh, community meetings. All of those things are important, so I probably stretch myself a little too thin in that regard <laughs> uh, because it's important to me that I have my finger on the pulse of what voters and people are concerned about and the work that needs to be done. So I'm speaking from a perch of, of reality of whatever law we pass, what the life-changing impact will be. So we know that time is precious, and we're running out of our time with you. Um, and so I, even though I could talk to you all day, it is so exciting to get <laughs> this you. chance to talk with you. So one last question. Any messages for the women who are listening about getting involved? What I was told is just do it. Don't overthink it. Don't analyze it too much. Just do it. Make sure you have a supportive network with you. And we as women always have a supportive network. You'll find that your family and your friends uh, will help you on that journey. And you can't be afraid to do it for yourself. That is marvelous advice. Shivana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for all the wonderful work you're doing. We really are honored and grateful to have had you here on Women at Work today. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Have a wonderful day. Enjoy this beautiful festival. <laughs> you too. I hope you get some time to enjoy it. This is <laughs> this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I've been talking with Debbie Walsh, director of the Center for American Women in Politics, and that was New Jersey Assemblywoman Shavonda Sumter. If you have a question about what we're discussing or you'd like to give us a call, we'd love to hear from you. That's 1-844-WHARTON. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So Debbie, I want to talk a little bit about the next generation of women going into politics. Can you talk to me? There's a program, Teach a Girl to Lead. What is it and how does it work? 
Well, Teach a Girl to Lead is an initiative that we started to reach kids K through 12 and make sure that women as public leaders were visible to them. And the work is really targeted to the adults in the lives of kids to see if they can, whether it's teachers or youth group leaders or parents, the ways in which we can make sure kids see women public leaders. Um, And that really comes out of the old Marion Wright Edelman saying, you know, you can't be what you can't see. Mm -hmm. That for little girls, if they don't see women as public leaders, you know, they can't dream of being that someday. And we're not going to get to political parity unless we have men on the planet who believe that women can be leaders too and they don't think uh, they don't think that much about it in that way and so we want little boys to grow up imagining that leaders look like their mothers as well as their fathers and we do it in a number of ways we've pulled together films and books um, that talk about women's public leadership so teachers can use it in classrooms we've developed classroom curricula uh, that teachers can access about women in Congress, women suffrage, women running for president over time, um, various aspects of women's political participation. And then finally, and really kind of my favorite new project that we've been doing, is something that we call our Teach a Girl to, to Lead reading project, where we are sending, and we've just sent out to every woman state legislator, um, woman member of Congress, and all the all four of our women governors, <laughs> we have sent them a copy of a book called um, If I Were President. And it's about kids imagining themselves as president and what are the things that they would do. But we've asked all of these elected women officials to take this book that we've sent them, go to a local elementary school, read it, and preferably in the month of March as part of Women's History Month, but we're happy if they read it in February as part of President's Weekend um, or any time during the rest of the school year, to read it in the classroom uh, to probably anywhere from kindergarten to about third or fourth grade, and then leave that book in the school library. But while they're there in the classroom reading the book, they can answer questions about what it means to be an elected official and how they got there and what their day looks like and what do they do in that job. Um, And it makes women public leaders real um, to kids, and it becomes part of the normal the, the normal world for them um, can be women as the people who lead our nation. So this particular project, it sounds like it's working on two levels. It's both putting a woman who serves in public office in front of kids so that that role model is real and it's and human and right in front of them, and then giving them the book, the content, so that they can start to dream about it and see themselves in that role. Yes, exactly. It is exactly those two things. And I kind of want to connect this in some ways to some of the things that Assemblywoman Sumter was just saying, because, you know, I think that people in politics get a bad rap. You know, there's mm-hmm. this notion that they're all corrupt and the the president has come into office saying things like, I'm going to clean the swamp because, you know, it's all corrupt. But most of the people who serve in office are people like Assemblywoman Sumter who are there because they want to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And when you described it as public service, um, that's just such a good 
way of thinking about it. I think if we get away from talking about folks who are elected officials as politicians, because that is such terrible, uh, people just think terrible things when they hear that, but the people who are serving, whether they're in Congress or in state legislatures or your local office holders, they're doing it for honestly not a lot of money. Um, you heard the kind of time commitment that that the assemblywoman is making. You know, these are public servants, and, you know, they should be respected and admired, and it should be something that that others aspire to be. Absolutely. I remember a boss that I had said to me, as soon as you have two people in a conversation, you have politics. So right. politics is about the, the tug of war, the negotiation back and forth, um, the dynamic between different points of view. But the work is really that of public service. That's right. Absolutely. Um, okay. So I want to make sure that we help our listeners find out about the Teach Alert a Girl to Lead program. So this is not like Ready to Run is actual um, on the ground workshops where you meet other people and engage in training. And those are around the country, correct? Yes. Okay. Those are around the country. And as I said, you can find them on our website, which is... Um, uh, now, Teach a Girl to Lead is a little bit different. It is, a pro- it is a project of the Center for American Women in Politics, and it's really resources for adults in the lives of children, and that website is just tag, T-A-G, dot Rutgers dot E-D-U. And among the things that are on that website, in addition to books and films for different age groups that are appropriate for anywhere from K through 12, we also have a a section called Programs and Places, which is really a great resource for parents in particular, but also for teachers, which is you can look, look at any state in the country and you can find any kind of leadership training program or camp or any kind of effort that's being done in your state to help girls be more engaged in civic life, but also locations for trips, um, you know, historic historic sites for women's political history around the country, um, and there are lots of them. So I urge people who have young kids to go to this website, take a look and see what's available in your state. Yeah, I have to say, I went as part of doing my homework for today's show, and um, I, I really, I got so excited because I also have a 14-year-old daughter, and uh-huh. um, it was exciting to see how many opportunities there are, and also organizations that I've been aware of through other activities that are on this list. So, for example, under types of program, you can see it's a girls' leadership program, or it's a summer camp, or it's right. a place of interest or a field trip. And it'll tell you the organization that's hosting it, what the program is about, and what the right grade level is. So, Absolutely. for example, we try to make it as easy as possible. <laughs> exactly. And so, whether you're looking to get your third grader involved in a program like Strong Women, Strong Girls, you could find out about that. Or if, when my daughter's in 11th grade, she could look at the, the program in Camp Hill that's focused on girls' leadership and that it's civics yeah. focused. And so, there's also the teaching toolbox programs and places. So, this is really a rich resource. And it, and it looks like all of these, in some way, go back to those core issues. How can we get girls to see themselves as leaders and get girls to see women role models that they could model themselves after. That's right, because it's it really, in some ways, regardless of the age group, whether it's the women at Ready to Run, whether it's 
the college women who participate in our new leadership program, which is a whole other public leadership training program for college women, or Teach a Girl to Lead, we have to get girls and women to see themselves as public leaders. And one of the best ways that you can do that is by literally having them meet women who have done it. Um, And it just opens up a world of possibilities for them um, in the future. Without a doubt. Okay, so we only have a few minutes left. But once you said college students, you know, you got me excited in a whole additional way. Because we know that these are young women who are poised to enter their professional lives and to go out there and really make a difference. So for the college women out there, where should what can they look up? What can they find to learn more about your program? They can also Definitely go back to that website, uh, cawp.rutgers.edu, and you will look up, search for new leadership, N-E-W leadership, and it stands for National Education for Women's Leadership. It's a program that we do. We run our own program here in the state of New Jersey that's open to any um, college woman in the entire state of New Jersey for a week-long intensive public leadership training program. But we have partnerships now in about 20 states, um, from California to Maine. Um, And what we're doing there is we have these programs open to students in any of the states where we have a program. Please go and look. It's an incredible program that really changes lives and changes the view of what young women think they can do with their futures. You know, we know that young women are volunteering and doing a tremendous amount of service work, but they don't necessarily connect the work that they're doing in service to politics. But we try to make those links between those two for them. Absolutely. Debbie, in the same way that they are poised to do this enormous work, you are doing tremendous work that's benefiting all of us. Thank you for all the work that you're doing, and thank you for joining us here today on Women at Work. Thanks. I totally enjoyed the conversation. As did I. So special thanks to Debbie and to Shavonda Sumpner. I'd also like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our associate producer, Allie Freed, and our sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. Thanks so much for listening, everybody, and we'll talk to you next week.